Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you for coming. You have a host of different ways of spending your lunch hour. On behalf of Heritage and myself, I want to thank you for spending this time with us today in order to satisfy not only your hunger, because there will be food when you leave, uh, but also to enrich your mind, because we have three experts you're going to hear from today. The, the issue they're going to talk about stems from the Congressional Review Act, also known as the CRA. The Congressional Review Act empowers the Congress and the President to use a fast-track process to repeal an agency rule. The Act requires agencies, whether executive or independent, to submit every agency rule, and that's an important term, to Congress before that rule can go into effect. An agency rule not submitted to Congress is therefore not in effect and is entitled to no legal weight whatsoever. Now, once an agency complies with the statute and submits the rule to Congress, a clock starts. The clock allows members a limited time to consider and vote on whether to nullify that rule without being held up by a Senate filibuster. If Congress passes a a motion of disapproval and the president signs it, the rule is deemed nullified. To prevent gamesmanship, The Congressional Review Act also provides that any rule nullified by Congress cannot be replaced by a new agency rule if that new rule is substantially similar to the old one, absent intervening congressional authorization. Otherwise, we would just be playing a hall of mirrors as new rules parroted most of what was said in the old one. Now, why does this matter? Well, as you know, President Trump is an enthusiastic advocate for pruning needless regulations that strangle economic growth. To that end, he and the 115th Congress used the Congressional Review Act with alacrity. All told, they combined to eliminate more than a dozen rules adopted during the Obama administration, as well as one rule adopted during his administration by an independent agency. Now, as I mentioned, the definition of the term rule is a central feature of the act. A broad interpretation of that rule would reach all sorts of interpretive rules, what one of our guests has labeled regulatory dark matter, such as agency guidance documents. Now, a broad construction of that term is quite valuable. The broader the reach of the term, the easier it is for Congress and the president to eliminate agency rules that exceed their bellywick or are unwise. 
Now, last April, the White House Office of Management and Budget decided to revisit this issue in order to help the President and Congress in this regard. OMB issued a memorandum interpreting the Act's requirements for federal agencies. That memo is important and will improve regulatory lawmaking for at least three reasons. First, the new OMB memo adopts a very expansive interpretation of the critical term rule. The OMB interpretation now reaches every type of regulatory dark matter that agencies can engage in. Second, the OMB memo applies to both executive and independent agencies. Both of them are covered by the text and policies of the statute, and OMB recognizes that therefore both should comply so the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs can analyze each rule before it becomes public and goes into effect. Third, like the proverbial dog that did not bark in the night, what the OMB memo did not say is also significant. What it did not say is whether it applies retroactively. It's clear that on a going-forward basis, every agency has to comply. It's not clear what the status is, therefore, of older rules, at least unless you read between the lines. If you read between the lines of the OMB memo, it seems that the memo would apply retroactively and the government would agree that agency dark matter that was never submitted to Congress is not in effect. But they didn't say that expressly. Perhaps litigation will resolve that issue. You will find out about that from one of our other panelists, Todd Gaziano, a former member of the Heritage Foundation. Now think about what this means. For years now, agencies have created thousands of, of rules and have not submitted them to Congress. Yet agencies have used those either in litigation or in jawboning with private parties to tell them what they must do, what they may do, and what they may not do. They have essentially created an entire sub-statutory and sub-regulatory form of law known as agency guidance documents. It is important to shed not only light on this issue, but judicial and public scrutiny on this entire practice. Our third speaker today, Meg Tayer, will talk about how this works in connection with one particular industry, that is, the banking industry. With that, now let me introduce the experts you will hear from today. First is Wayne Cruz, the author of the term regulatory dark matter. He is the vice president for policy as well as a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute where he researches the impact of government regulation on free enterprise. He has authored or co-authored numerous articles and books, including the well-known annual report, quote, 10,000 Commandments, an annual snapshot of the federal regulatory state. He has repeatedly been published in and cited by the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Forbes, and others. He has frequently appeared on television and radio programs, including Fox News, Fox Business, CNN, and ABC. He received his MBA from William & Mary and a BS from Lander College in Greenwood, South Carolina. And Oh, and by the way, while he was in college, he ran for the state legislature, so you know he is definitely interested in, in trying to improve the state of the world. Prior to working at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, he was 
at the Cato Institute, the U.S. Senate, and the Food and Drug Administration. So he has plenty of experience dealing with the government. Our second speaker is Todd Gaziano, the Chief of Legal Policy and Strategic Research at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where he directs the Center for the Separation of Powers. He has worked in all three branches of the government and in the private sector. He served as a law clerk to U.S. Fifth Circuit Judge Edith Jones in the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel and as Chief Subcommittee Counsel in the U.S. House of Representatives. Todd is a familiar and always welcome face because he was here at the Heritage Foundation for 17 years where he co-founded the Mies Center, where I am now. He attended the University of Chicago Law School, where he was a John M. Olin Fellow in Law and Economics. Then you will hear from Margaret or Meg Tayer. She is a partner in the law firm of Davis, Polk, and Warwell in the Financial Institutions Group. She advises banks, financial institutions, and technology companies. In addition to her practice, Ms. Tayer teaches financial regulation as an adjunct professor at the Harvard Law School. She is the co-author of Financial Regulation, Law and Policy. Excuse me. She has written numerous scholarly articles, and she frequently speaks at legal conferences. She received her B.A. from the University of Michigan and her law degree from Columbia Law School, where she was the valedictorian. She was a law clerk for D.C. Circuit Judge Robert Bork and U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Please join me in welcoming our panel members. Wayne? Paul, thank you so much for the introduction and for having us and hosting this event. It's, I think it's a it's a very pertinent topic. And when I when I ran for state senate, I ran as a libertarian, and so like all libertarians, I got four percent of the vote. I was actually kicked off the ballot in my home county because I was too young, but they didn't <laughs> they didn't catch on in the next county over. But uh, anyway, I, I'll get going. This, there's a lot of alarm over federal spending and the debt and the deficit now, but at least you can look those up. That's not the case with regulation, which is the least disciplined aspect of the federal enterprise particularly when guidance documents, notices, bulletins, circulars, interpretations, blog posts, press releases, and all the rest are concerned. Here we find ourselves at a panel discussing an update of a 20-year-old OMB memo to agencies called Guidance on Compliance with the Congressional Review Act. Apart from a recent spasm, the Congressional Review Act has been almost fruitlessly beckoning an indifferent Congress for the past quarter century, and despite its hugely bipartisan origins. The OMB memo redundantly reinforces long-ignored legal obligations. As such, it highlights a special case of one nation ungovernable, also known as the impossibility of the administrative state, as I'll talk about a little bit. Most notably, the memo appears amid a backdrop wherein almost all guidance documents issued since 1996, as opposed to the future ones it addresses, may be invalid, having never been reported to Congress in the GAO as the Congressional Review Act commands. A recent House Oversight and Government Reform report called Shining Light on Regulatory Dark Matter last year detailed how 46 
agencies issued at least 13,000 guidance documents over a 10-year period, but only 189 of those were submitted to Congress and the GAO as required by the CRA, when nearly all of them should have been. For context, the issue of non-submitted notice and comment regulations illegitimacy gained prominence after a 2017 column by the Wall Street Journal's Kimberly Strassel on our panelist Todd Gaziano's work uh, on that issue. This new memo reaffirms the rule status of guidance documents alongside and reiterates the requirement that those, too, must get sent to Congress and the GAO per the Congressional Review Act. Next, the memo outlines a process for all agencies cooperatively with the OMB to make major rule determinations, notably in what George Washington University's Bridget Dooling called OMB's gambit with respect to independent agencies, the memo directs agencies not to publish or otherwise release rules or guidance prior to OMB's designation. I don't expect it to stick, but the gambit might already be working a little bit because I looked at the rules that had been issued this year since this memorandum came into effect, which was a month ago, May 11th, and the numbers of rules and significant rules had dropped significantly. Can't attribute that to anything yet because overall the quantities were going down. But I think the the percentage may be a little more than what we might have expected otherwise. Okay, so now what? There are two one-pagers in the kits that you have. I'll reference and put some context on the capabilities and limitations of what the OMB memo says and ways to reinforce it. And those will be your takeaways. Arguably, since agencies don't abide the CRA law already, they're not going to listen to a pipsqueak OMB memo from an acting director especially under a future administration. So my recommendations are offered in the context of a Congress disinclined to do regulatory reform and agencies inclined to resume regulation as soon as they can get out from under the one in, two out commandment of President Trump. I want to use the occasion of the OMB memo to amplify a case for a new Trump executive order. Uh, and it needs to be, in my view, as iconic as Ronald Reagan's Executive Order 12291. It needs to encompass the memo's elements, but far more than that. So to me, there are things to fret over and things not to fret over with respect to this new memo. Don't fret over the memo's major rule designation process because there's maybe a nuclear option in there. Don't fret over improbable independent agency compliance since even executive agencies don't abide with respect to the rules and guidance, and cost-benefit analysis is largely a myth anyway. Do, however, fret over the loophole embodied in the concoction of a presumptively not major category. Right now, all rules, major and not major, are ostensibly blocked if they do not adhere to the major rule determination process. This carve-out will only grow and add a new layer of passivity with respect to the CRA. Do also fret over OMB's presumption that Circular A4 is the right tool for managing CRA and assessing costs because it hasn't controlled things so far for executive agency reviews. Most of all, though, fret over the fact that the deeper problem we face is Congress's non-appetite for restraining agencies. For perspective, illustrated in one of your handouts, it's called Rule of Flaw, F-L-A-W, not L-A-W. It, the noncompliance with the regulatory process is fairly rampant, not just with the Congressional Review Act, but with executive orders and with the Regulatory Right to Know Act. OMB, it's, OMB itself is culpable. The Regulatory Right to Know Act requires an aggregate regulatory cost estimate 
not the 10-year look back adopted at the turn of the century. Now even the 10-year review is ignored as the annual report to Congress on regulatory costs is the latest ever, even under Trump. We're approaching fiscal year 2020, but the last OMB report covered 2016. On not fretting the major rule determination process in the memo, the OMB memo says agencies must coordinate with OIRA on major rule determinations. But the CRA actually doesn't specify that, although agencies are commanded to weight OMB's designation as major or not. Surprisingly, OMB is not even mentioned in the Congressional Review Act except once in the definitions with respect to what a major rule is. The only consultation made explicit in the CRA is cooperation with the Controller General with respect to its report on major rules. GAO is hall monitor of sorts. The workaround for this is for OIRA to simply designate rules major, liberally, similar to how executive orders have given agencies authority to deem significance in the past. In a way, a strong form reading of the OMB memo is that it's being polite. The big gun is further hinted at where the memo simply intones that OIRA may inform the agency of agreement or not, especially since CRA criteria for what counts as a major rule allows OMB more leeway for designating rules major that don't cost $100 million. So if OMB makes a major, makes a unilateral determination, that could induce the agency, agency to rethink a rule, but if not, that's the point of an executive order. Plus, noncompliance statistics on the CRA are something for oversight hearings and for OMB to incorporate into the annual report to Congress when that gets back on track. Meanwhile, the OMB's deification of the memo's deification of OMB's circular A4 is a drawback. America's regulatory enterprise cannot be governed on that basis, as I try to capture in the rule of law handout. Among other things, pervasive market socialism today in the modern era rules out A4 as a management tool capable of recognizing regulatory costs and of restraining the administrative state and expanding liberties. Circular A4 needs rewriting even more than OMB's 1999 memo did. As examples of what I mean, as CEI founder Fred Smith notes, most large-scale resources that were in the hands of government at the dawn of the progressive era, airsheds, watersheds, spectrum, are still controlled politically. And now the pre-existing administrative state is rendering new innovations like driverless cars, drones, and so forth, captive at birth to regulation when they need not be. And that's only possible because the administrative state exists ahead of them. What I'm getting at is the major designation, while it's important, matters less than reaffirming Article One, That is, ensuring that the rules get sent up to Congress where they're subject to being overturned and that better, and that better records start getting kept about this. Too much emphasis on major rules also can make us overlook increasingly consequential guidance, the tabulation of which needed more attention in the memo and is another shortcoming. As my intern, Sean Stewart, can tell you, and he's sitting right back there now, the Office of Government Reform Report on dark matter depicts utter chaos, and no official has their arms around the guidance situation. Still, though, non-major guidance, in fact, is prominent in what has been overturned. The indirect auto lending guidance, the only guidance ever shot down by the Congressional Review Act, was never declared major by anybody, merely redundantly deemed a rule by the, by the GAO. Other prominent guidance like the infamous bathroom, dear colleague, and the sweeping Department of Labor administrative interpretations on contracting and franchising, they were never deemed major, but clearly were so. 
and they were revoked by the Trump administration by means apart from the Congressional Review Act. So in the final analysis, agency noncompliance is not the real issue. It doesn't matter how powerful the OMB memo is if Congress continues to have no appetite for streamlining the regulatory torrent that already paralyzes it. Consider hundreds of Obama midnight rules were eligible for rollback, but only 14 got the boot. And the CRA window there was no, after the CRA window, there was no need to stop since it became apparent that earlier rules not properly submitted as documented on Todd's red tape rollback page could have been brought into the, into the um, situation. Likewise, guidance subject to congressional review goes back decades but Congress behaves as if all outstanding guidance that never got properly submitted to GAO and Congress is live <clears throat> unless they get up on their hind legs and seek a redundant GAO rule designation. The CFPB's auto lending rule got jettisoned that way, but the financial agency's leveraged lending rule and all other non-effective guidance are still out there. I regard this as too great a concession. Overturning never-submitted rules means Congress bows to agency primacy when nothing has taken effect in the first place, according to the language of the CRA, that is. In fact, with no report, Congress lacks the raw material even to contemplate a disapproval resolution. So given problems like this, I've been emphasizing for a couple years the need for an executive order on regulatory dark matter to bridge the gap between Trump's initial regulatory reform flurry and some future Congress that can initiate regulatory reform like the Good Act on guidance documents or the Regulatory Accountability Act or the RAINS Act. <clears throat> As it happens, the other handout I have there on the executive order, and planks one and six in that one page encompass what's in the OMB, OMB memo. Incidentally, also, the OMB should have taken the opportunity to improve and reissue the rule reporting form, as noted in Plank 5. We keep talking about these reports that agencies send to OMB. It looks like this. OMB helped create it, but you download it from the GAO's webpage. This form actually has its roots in the original 1999 memo that last month's new OMB memo replaced. But the new OMB memo didn't update this form. And this form doesn't have a good way to designate guidance and what it is. So I think that's going to plague the new effort. So the executive order should do some other things, bring independent agencies under review, certify OMB's deeming rules major unilaterally. I think data generated by the planks that are in that executive order could facilitate sort of a CFR for guidance documents for us. We need to document the long train of abuses, so to speak, which would include reaffirming the requirement that OMB perform the aggregate cost estimate and so forth. If Congress awakens to a flurry of new regulations based on the OMB memo and executive order, perhaps then it will take steps to scale down the administrative state. Alternatively, it may continue to remain often idle, inadvertently legitimizing it. We clearly are enmeshed in a far larger struggle for limited government. So a real issue is how do we regroup if we conclude that the Administrative Procedure Act, which the CRA in a sense amended, cannot protect liberty? The libertarian movement spends a lot of time playing in a sandbox on the left's big administrative state beach. Our real task is not just administrative state reform, which can protect the administrative state, but restoration of Article I. <clears throat> and the introduction of the, of the OMB memo thankfully alludes to that. An influx of socialist and far-left progressive politicians is today's dominant political reality. 
And for them, the validity of their pet administrative state doesn't even rise to the level of an afterthought. We can debate the finer points of the memos like this, but we have to ask ourselves to what extent is it incoherent and tone deaf to chit-chat about administrative state reform if an avowed socialist is president of the United States. So to me, the order's greatest appeal and the strengthening of it by executive order is to create the body of knowledge demonstrating that an untethered administrative state doesn't and cannot work rather than just try to reform it or study it. The memo's for posterity, not just us. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Todd? Thank you. Um, And I'm always delighted to come back to my former professional home here at the Heritage Foundation, uh, but especially to talk about the Congressional Review Act, uh, which is near and dear to my heart, but also uh, with my good friend Paul Larkin. I intend to make five brief points today, but most of those are elaborations on Paul Larkin's very good essay on the OMB memo that was passed out to those of us who are here in the room and I'm sure viewers uh, of the archived uh, or, or, or uh, uh, web webcast can obtain it as well. It's in the regulatory review. So Google Larkin and the regulatory review at OMB and I'm sure you'll find it. So point number one is I agree with uh, both Wayne and Paul uh, that it's great that OMB clarified that the rules that must be first submitted to uh, uh, OIRA and OMB and then to Congress include agency guidance documents, or at least um, almost all those that affect uh, third parties. Uh, Paul uh, and I have been making this point uh, for years, and many others in this room have been too, uh, but alas, the um, uh, those in the bowels of the bureaucracy uh, didn't give it give our, our opinion much weight. Um, I think they've got to give OMB's um, uh, guidance at least a little bit of weight, but I probably also agree with Wayne that it's not um, mandatory or definitive. But that's only going forward um, because bureaucrats will use any excuse not to do additional work, especially if it undermines their power um, uh, grabs. And so as Paul noted, uh, the dog that didn't bark was that uh, the OMB guidance is completely silent as to uh, the impact of the thousands of guidance documents that researchers and, and the House report indicated were never sent to Congress. Our own uh, spot checks at the Pacific Legal Foundation on our red tape rollback uh, project uh, showed a, a similar very, very, very tiny fraction of, of guidance documents ever sent uh, to Congress. Um, but I think the answer is very clear that uh, it, it can't be the case that new guidance documents are covered by a law passed in 1996 and old ones were not. That, that just can't be. So we know that they are and have never been uh, lawfully in effect um, uh, if they were not delivered to Congress. Uh, Paul is very polite in saying in his um, essay that we wouldn't necessarily expect OMB to draw attention to that fact. Um, but whether or not OMB should have drawn attention to that uh, fact, I think we can and should do more um, to undermine guidance documents that are being given effect that 
lawfully have no effect, especially those that have a coercive effect on third parties, which is most of them. After all, agencies don't create these hundred, multi-hundred page guidance documents just for our benefit, um, as they often claim. So that sets up my last four points. So my first of those and my second point is that um, whether we should uh, pat OMB on the back for taking this first step, um, and I think we should, we should continue to urge it to take the next obvious step, which is to order a review of all those thousands of guidance documents and require them to either repeal them, modify them, and submit them or submit them uh, as is. And here is a significant reason why the administration should should want to do that that maybe it hasn't considered. Um, this administration is issuing a lot of deregulatory rules. There are other rules which regulated community actually likes. Well, those having never been submitted to Congress, Congress has never had an opportunity to engage in its fast-track review process. Well, what if a future president that hates deregulatory rules um, then submits them? That is the first time the expedited review period will start ticking, and a socialist president that Wayne so fears um, may bring in with him a socialist Congress. If they then use those expedited procedures to reject the deregulatory rule, it will not only mean that it's wiped off the books, but that future socialist president could have done so anyway. It means that no agency could ever in any way, through notice and comment or otherwise, ever issue such a deregulatory rule ever again. That should encourage OMB to do the right thing. So again, pat them on the back, but tell them to take the next step. Point three, um, as Paul correctly notes in his essay, it's admittedly hard to challenge um, so-called guidance documents, non-notice and comment rules directly in court unless the agency uh, takes some sort of final agency action that affects um, a regulated party who would then have standing to challenge it. Um, but in our public interest experience, there are opportunities to do so. They're mostly defensively. And so we are increasingly uh, doing so, and we want to evangelize and encourage other people to do so. My favorite example that I've uh, used here at Heritage before is our litigation of the Tin Cup case. Our client, uh, Tin Cup Company in Alaska, wanted to uh, build a facility, so they asked the Army Corps of Engineers um, whether the Army Corps of Engineers thought it had jurisdiction um, uh, that would require a permit. And the Army Corps of Engineers said that they couldn't, that they did have jurisdiction, that our that our client couldn't uh, build because of a guidance document. That was the Alaska Supplement Guidance Document that just so happened to double the agency's jurisdiction in the state of Alaska by declaring that permafrost was a navigable water of the United States. <laughs> now, I don't think permafrost is very navigable at all. And it's a form of water and frozen ground that, you know, I, again, if it's a, if it's a navigable water, it's a state navigable water. But anyway, um, uh, we lost in the District Court of Alaska because the agency snookered the lazy judge into deferring to its guidance document, the Alaska Supplement, which doubled its power, um, uh, 
because, and, and I don't think that any rational judge without that kind of deference would have interpreted the Clean Water Act in, in that manner. Now, we didn't raise the CRA claim early enough. It was before I came to PLF. But we did subsequently, unfortunately, the Ninth Circuit being the Ninth Circuit, wanted none of it and wouldn't even rule on that ground. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court just denied cert on that case. But we've been raising these kind of claims in many of other suits, and you could understand how um, uh, others can do so uh, defensively. The agency uh, never wants to say its guidance is binding until it demands that the court give deference to it. Okay, my fourth point. We at the Pacific Legal Foundation are also affirmatively launching a campaign to establish clear precedent that there is judicial review of any agency failure to submit a particular rule as long as you can establish um, standing. And in our uh, uh, first suit in Idaho, we had a tremendous victory, the most thorough and a lengthy opinion on the judicial review question to date, agreeing with all our points, maybe because we cited Paul Larkin's Law Review article uh, to the court. Um, the second most thorough opinion on the subject um, also comes to the same conclusion. A third case that we're litigating as an intervener comes to the same conclusion um, also last year. Um, uh, but there's a conflict in the in the uh jurisprudence on this before we started our campaign because there is a limitation on judicial review in the Congressional Review Act. We submit that it is only a limitation on um, judicial review of presidential and OMB and congressional discretionary action, and it is not a bar on judicial review for mandatory agency uh, action. We did lose um, in a case in Kansas recently. We've appealed to the Tenth Circuit. We're about to file our brief. Um, uh, the district court in Kansas, I won't bore you with the details, but did not even address or consider the strong presumption that the Supreme Court said exists for judicial review under the APA. By the way, that strong presumption is a rise in three cases that we actually brought in one in the Supreme Court. So it's always great when you're a lawyer when you can cite your own, you know, decisions you won back to courts. But I am confident that that even if we lose in the Tenth Circuit, that may set up a nice circuit split, but we are um, uh, committed to uh, establishing that Supreme Court precedent, which could then be used for agency failure to submit both notice and comment and certain uh, guidance documents, and that will help solve your problem of having to rely on Congress. Um, my final point is that the Supreme Court may uh, make some of this problem a little bit better in a decision that's expected in the next two weeks. Um, and we at the Pacific Legal Foundation filed an amicus brief that made a Congressional Review Act connection. So, so let me give you a little background. Um, in previous cases, the Supreme Court had instructed judges that they are supposed to defer to agencies' interpretations of their own rules. Um, this is called our deference from the case AUER. Uh, it is Chevron's uh, bratty little cousin. <laughs> um, now, there's all kinds of reasons why that's wrong. 
And we also joined others with the standard constitutional arguments why that's wrong. And the main reason it's wrong is because it's a dereliction of the judge's Article Three duty to say what the law is, to systematically defer to one of the uh, litigants every time. And I also think it's perverse to systematically uh, def- have by exercise bias in favor of the government in in private uh, litigation. Uh, contracts are lawyers in the room know that contracts are construed against the drafter. It's it's especially perverse that systematic bias always goes in favor of the government. So we all agree there's constitutional reasons that that our deference must stop. But here is the unique argument that we at Pacific Legal Foundation um, uh, I- I- explained to the court. Um, almost all of those interpretations of regulations that the agencies say the court should defer to are found in guidance documents. And 99 point something something of those guidance documents have never been submitted in Congress, to Congress. So it is paradoxical or perverse that courts would defer to an agency interpretation of the regulation in a guidance document that the agency said wasn't even worth giving a copy to Congress. Put it another way, it's also perverse and paradoxical for courts to give uh, any deference, any weight whatsoever to guidance documents that, according to the Congressional Review Act, were never lawfully in effect. So we believe that the court needs to end this uh, uh, bratty uh, Chevron cousin deference doctrine for constitutional reasons, but also because it violates the Congressional Review Act. And with that, I'll turn it back. Thank you, Todd. Meg? Which way do I do I have to point this in a special way to get? Uh, there you go. Oh, there it is over there. Okay. Well, um, thank you very much for having me here and in today. the back. And and in the back, right? So, thank you very much for having me here today. You should have this also as a handout. Um, I think I'm here to tell you why regulatory dark matter is so much worse in the banking sector. And I'd like all of you, as I'm speaking and explaining it, to have your thinking caps on and help me. Because Wayne's term, regulatory dark matter, covers everything on the left-hand side of my slide. It It is the banking agencies acting and behaving and doing exactly what all the other agencies are doing. I want to focus on the right-hand side of my slide, which is the even darker matter. You know, I I have thought about dark, darker, darkest. I've thought about dark side of the moon. Um, None of these are really singing to me. So as as you're listening to me talk, if you have a better label for the secret matter uh, that's happening within the banking agencies, Please, please let me know. I'd be grateful. I'm, I'm crowdsourcing for ideas. Um, the banking sector is a, a part of the regulatory state, a part of the administrative state, but unique in many ways. One of the things that's unique about it is that the regulation of the banking sector predates the New Deal. It predates the progressive era. It goes back centuries. And in fact, the secret bank exam report goes back in this country at least 200 years. And it, at its core, it has a very good thought. 
Back in the day before there was federal deposit insurance, a very big concern was runs on the bank. And it's still a crime in many states to spread false rumors about a bank. You have no deposit insurance. Those who get to the door first take out their money, and those who don't lose their money. So as a protective matter, bank examination reports were secret so that there wouldn't be panic, and spreading false rumors was a crime. And you can understand that historical core. Of course, today we have federal deposit insurance. Interestingly as well, some of the first versions of the Administrative Procedure Act, which was passed in 1946, right after World War II, right? So it had been tried for many years, and in fact, an earlier version was vetoed by President Roosevelt. But after, you know, the horrors of the authoritarian regimes of World War II came to light, it's really no surprise that finally the Administrative Procedure Act was passed. And I believe Administrative Procedure Act is a very bad and wrong name because it makes a lot of people's eyes glaze over. It should be called the Democratic Accountability Act. It it needs a a better name because that's what it did. And it required, as Wayne probably knows, a compendium of outstanding notice and comment regulations. It required notice and comment regulation. It required the Federal Register. Initial versions of it excluded the banking agencies because they had existed for a very long time, pre-New Deal, OCC, Civil War, the Fed, 1913. The FDIC does come in with a New Deal, but culturally they are of the same ilk. And so the, the final version of the APA did not exclude the banking agencies. But for one reason or another, the, the APA has always been worn lightly by the banking agencies, almost as if it didn't count in quite the same way for them. And so you see happening uh, in the mid-60s, we get this concept of confidential supervisory information, which is the bank exam report and a bunch of other things that are on the right-hand side of my slide. But traditionally, it was the bank exam report. And traditionally, the bank exam report was limited to what I call a quantitative core. What are your loans? What are your reserves? What is your liquidity? Things that can require examiner discretion, but can be judged. There is a regulation that declares that these reports are the property of the banking regulators. Makes sense back in that paper-based world that it looks to me like many people in this room weren't even born in that time. You can imagine a time where bank exam reports were a piece of paper that was handed from file to file and there was maybe only two copies of it in existence. Not like today. They're the property, the assertion, and then because of the reference to the general, you can't steal property from the federal government, disclosing anything, anything that a banking regulator asserts is its property, which in the digital world, they and they do it for all kinds of things. This is our property. You can't disclose it. Now disclosing it becomes a crime. So what do we have in the banking sector? We have the right-hand side, confidential supervision, advisory information, and there's all kinds of standards, guidance, behavior-changing things that start there and later become public or start there and stay there. This is the darkest dark matter, the backside of the moon. 
What's happened in the last 25 to 30 years is the an incredible expansion in what is CSI. Just as we've had an explosion in the digital era of information, there's been an explosion in the kind of information and things that happen in the CSI cone. And we're now far, far beyond the traditional bank exam. So, you know, I, I have written and I've testified before the Senate Banking Committee that I think there needs to be a relook at the CSI regulations, last looked at in 1966, not uh, not at all suited for the digital era, and that the criminal prohibition needs to be changed. And what's kept secret needs to move down to what's necessary for financial stability, which is what we worry about today when in, in the in, – it's kind of the – today's child of the ancestral bank runs. Uh, and it, what has also happened uh, in, in the banking sector is the – I think there's been – a generation of the supervisory staff, men and women of good faith, trying to do well, having been very, very, having done great things during the financial crisis and having been very scarred by the financial crisis. But there has simply been no training, no briefing, nothing on what we lawyers look at, separation of powers, Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, the the supervisory staff has not been trained on this at all. And I put the blame there not on the supervisory staff, but on the principals and the senior staff of the banking agencies. A generation of bank supervisors believe in good faith that safety and soundness standards transcend the law and that they have the ability to use their inherent authority under safety and soundness. Now that's probably shocking to the people in the, in this room because you understand the separation of powers. You think like the way that lawyers do. The supervisory staff has never met the concepts, never been trained on, never met the concepts that we're talking about here in this room. They believe many of them have been mistrained to believe that they have inherent authority. Now there is Bank safety and soundness, it comes from a statute. It's a statutory authority. It's broad. It gives the agencies a lot of discretion. It is not limitless. Um, So uh, one of the other things that I I think makes sense to see is um, appropriate training of supervisory staff. Now, this is challenging because the culture within the supervisory staff, and more so in the regions than in Washington, is um, kind of a – it has developed to be a mistrust of lawyers, a mistrust of legal arguments. And we really are dealing with, you know, an, an entire generation and a half who just has never, ever – Met the, these concepts. Just hasn't met them. Um, and so it's, it's going to be a cultural shift. Certainly if you look, uh, uh, Yellen and McWilliams from the FDIC, um, is, is working on changing the supervisory culture. She has rescinded a lot of the FDIC's, uh, financial institutions letters that were redundant. Uh, if you look, uh, Vice Chair Quarles is, is making efforts in, in this way. 
Um, but we really are talking about changing long-standing cultural attitudes that not only predate the CRA, they they predate the badly named uh, APA. Uh, and with that, I think we might want to move to either questions or back and forth, whatever whatever you think, Paul. Well, listen, first let me thank each of you uh, for making these uh, contributions. I want to give uh, Wayne and Todd an opportunity briefly uh, to comment on anything that uh, Meg may have said, but then I've got a question I'm going to throw up to all of you. Uh, before I start taking some from the audience, but go ahead, Wayne. I, I just, just a quick question. You just mentioned letters that had been revoked. And see, this is an example of one of the things we talked about in terms of Trump's two-for-one right. regulatory program, for example. There were a lot of things, although he's got a lot of regulatory impulses of his own that we diagrammed, there are a lot of things he didn't take credit for that could have been incorporated, like the, 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 the reform of the, the reform at the, of net neutrality, for example, the labor rules I mentioned. But I keep hearing on random occasions like this one that some letters or some kind of guidance has been revoked. And as I was talking about looking at this, these, these guidance reports that the, um, the, uh, the uh, House Oversight Committee had put out, we don't, even, we, we don't have the compendium of guidance, but also when things get changed... We often you, don't you see don't, it, and you, you don't you, know if you're you not in the sector. Compendium, it's got to cover the good stuff as well, things like that. If I were doing an update of the report, you know, kind of inventorying all this stuff like I've done before, I probably wouldn't have caught that unless I had heard you say it here at an event like this. So you see what we mean. We talk about unmanageability yeah. of, of, of this. That was just my observation as much as a question, but I will I will contact you later about getting hold of those. <laughs> just make uh, two quick points that I think um, um, both Wayne's and, and Meg's presentation reminded me of. Um, the Department of Justice uh, issued two memoranda, mostly known as the um, uh, brand uh, memo, that said that uh, to instructed DOJ attorneys not to rely on on guidance documents in um, uh, litigation. Um, and I think, by the way, it doesn't cite the CRA, but in discussions with some people, I think that the CRA problem uh, partially informed that. Um, and, and that's a good development. And so we should n- recognize other good developments. But it doesn't stop the agencies from relying on their own. And, and so I want to say there's still a problem. Um, the other point, and it will connect the two, is that um, Meg may be right that the financial industry regulatory dark, dark, whatever matter is worse than others, but I think that's a contested, easily contested point. Are, are there uh, other, are there other places where there's a criminal prohibition? I mean, one of the things that I have on the slide is, you know, there are a lot of leaks now. We, before the financial crisis, we never saw leaks of CSI. Now there's leaks, and those leaks are coming both from the regulators and the private sector, and one of the things that the banking sector has to deal with is, CSI belongs and the privilege belongs to the regulators and they can disclose officially or unofficially at any time. So you may be right, you may convince me, but I don't know of another place where there's a crime. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to say that it's contested and then make the second point that I think we both – by the way, EPA, our clients who face the EPA, eh, a lot of what you said kind of I can think of of, of parallels. Um uh, to the kind of investigatory power and other power that EPA has. But what I was going to say is what, what I think our clients and, and your experience with your clients shares is that 
in my talk, I said, well, we can just use the CRA defensively in litigation once they begin litigation. The, 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 the other point that I think you can elaborate on that Paul, you know, covers is that once you're in an enforcement action, yeah, you can try to raise the but, CRA defense, but no one wants to be and, in and the, litigation, and it takes a very strong client to litigate even when there's a possibility to litigate. And that's very rare, right? Because, it, you know, what's really happening is you have this kind of, you know, industrial consulting complex and this management consulting happening everywhere by the regulators to to the regulated, and, you know, what goes to litigation is a tiny fraction. I do want to say one point that hasn't come out at all here today, and I think it's a very important element. The regulated entities want guidance. They seek guidance. They ask for guidance. And so any ultimate solution has to also take that into account. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say uh, there's no doubt guidance plays uh, a very valuable role in this regard. Um, people want to comply with the law. They want to know what the law is, but they also want to know what the people who would be bringing an enforcement action think the law means because it oftentimes differs. I mean, that's how you, you wind up with lawsuits. It's very important to recognize guidance can be very helpful. The problem is – uh, we have too much of it, and no one can keep track of it all. And, and if you don't comply with the rules that Congress has laid down for agencies, that is, if agencies don't comply with the rules that Congress has laid down for agencies, uh, it should be difficult for agencies then to complain when private parties don't comply with the agency's rules. And And, and I think it's you know, the law is not black and white in a toggle switch, right? And I think this is part of the issue. And we have this issue of fair amount in compliance with law examinations in the banking sector. It's not black and white. Sometimes it's black and white. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes there's discretion. So I'm reminded of my youngest son, who's a good and careful driver, but a new driver. And he recently got three points on his license to his shock and horror, um, driving on a Friday before a holiday weekend. I had forgotten to warn him that. You know, the police are out. And, and so he was going 10 miles over the speed limit. That's a toggle switch, black, white. He's caught, bam. He's, you know, he just has to pay the fine. Happens to every driver. But the policeman also ticketed him for unsafe lane change, uh, which my son uh, says was, you know, completely uh, inappropriate and not right. Now, of course, he would say that to me, but um, let's assume that it was completely inappropriate and not right. There was a discretion, right? It was an interpretation of the law, of the facts to the law, discretionary on the part of the police officer. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I told him, pay the fine. By the way, that comes out of your own allowance. Um, and, and, and there's just, there's no fighting city hall on this. And so it doesn't really matter a lot when it's one 20-year-old learning a life lesson. I think it does matter a lot when social and economic and policy choices that affect jobs and growth and who gets loans and who doesn't get loans, then it matters an enormous amount. And it matters even more when it's happening behind closed doors. Wayne, I think you had a comment. Oh, I was just mentioning, I hadn't heard this, these instances of, of criminalization about, about speaking about things like this, but when you were talking about kind of the, 
a lot of times when when I started analyzing this stuff, usually you think about guidance or dark matter as something that's that's written down, you know. But that's often not the case. I, I remember it with the, the CFPB. Someone asked Cordray what you know what what it was going to do about writing the regulations on unfair and deceptive trade practice. He said, "Well, you, I'm not going to write anything down. You just." You, know, you check with us, and and there's a similar thing in even in this big 400-page you know, net neutrality rule. I thought the most significant part of it was around page 88 when it said that before telecom firms make new investments to check with the FCC. So a lot of times, you know, you have this regulation, but then you just have, oh, you got to consult with us before you make a move, kind of a, a mother may I element, and I called it dark energy because it wasn't something that was written right. down. But, and, what, and we, that, I think that's that's worrisome as well. We probably want to get some questions of the audience, but the mother may I element is really huge because it, at least in the banking sector, um, if you irritate your supervisor, you're not going to get branches. You may get a letter that says you can't make investments. There are lots of ways that you can be punished. Um, whether, you know, in other areas, if you don't keep the direct supervisors happy. I mean, fortunately, my son's interaction with that policeman was a one-time event. But imagine if the policeman were, in fact, you know, living in your house and looking at how you drive every single day. I'd like to offer the audience the opportunity to ask questions. Let me just uh, please, at the outset, give you some of the ground rules we always use here at Heritage. Please identify yourself by name and organization. Please uh, keep your question short. And please uh, try to, if you can, identify anyone in particular who may uh, be able to answer it. Oh, and one other thing. Giving a speech and then at the end adding the statement, do you agree or disagree with me, is not a question. <laughs> All right. Anyone have any questions? I, I think the fellow, fellow over there, this third row. Gabriel Greenspan, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, this can go to anyone, but um, one proposal that I've heard a lot about is the Regulation Freedom, freedom Amendment, which would essentially – if I understand it correctly, require that uh, if a certain percentage of Congress, I believe it's a quarter, uh, disapproves of a major new regulation, then they can force a congressional vote. So I was, this can go to anyone, but I'm just wondering uh, how much do you think – do you think that has steam behind it? Do you think it will go far away in terms of enforcing transparency and deregulation? I mean, what are your thoughts on that essentially? Um I like the notion. It's like a, it's like a, a different version of reins. You know, it, it's a way of, of uh, if, if, if it's the, if that's the piece of, if that's the amendment I'm thinking of, it's if a certain percentage of either of, of the houses of Congress wants to get rid of a rule, they, they, they start a process to get that done and have, and, and have a acknowledgement of it. It, as far as I know, it doesn't take into effect guidance documents. It wouldn't really get at the point we have here, but it's another way of, Moving toward regulatory reform more broadly, I think the the main vehicles on the congressional side for regulatory reform. One in particular is called the Regulatory Accountability Act that would update a lot of the Administrative Procedure Act. It would deal with guidance documents and things of that sort. The you know you talk about that version, but the Reins Act, a version of Reins in some form or another, has been around for over twenty years. There was it used to be called the Congressional Responsibility Act back when I remember J D Hayworth, I think it was first introduced it back in the 1990s, 
But, um, you know, the, in Congress now, there's no appetite for that kind of thing, you know, and, you know, the Constitution does have other ways of, you know, of getting things done with, with the states, you know, taking a role like that or, and uh, other methods. But um, I love the idea. I, I often will mention it, you know, in, in articles and things, but um, it, it just doesn't have any legs right now. I don't think. I'll just make a brief comment on, on the, the RAINS Act has not even received a vote in the Senate, and it's been around for a long time, so there's the, you know, how likely is this? You, even if you want to eliminate the filibuster, you've got to pass the filibuster to uh, to pass a law that eliminates the filibuster in the future. But the constitutionality of the various versions of the RAINS Act have been challenged wrongly in my mind. Um, but I think the constitutional argument, at least against the proposal you mentioned, um, would be stronger. And um, you know, the uh, co- Congress can um, Constitution provides are the judge of their own rules, as and and they can adopt rules that as long as they don't conflict with the Constitution. So as long as final passage is according to the majority and presentment uh, bicameralism present requirements, I don't really see a pro- I haven't studied that bill but I don't see a problem with that but just an additional hurdle uh, to passage will be those members of Congress who don't want to vote on rules all the time will hide behind the constitutional concern that it might not be constitutional second row um, so my question is or sorry I'm Trent Cunningham from University of San Diego School of Law um, is so we're like Congress give them more power, let them review more things, um, but they've already shown that they they and they almost maybe like abdicating their duty. It's it's politically convenient to to point to the administration like I didn't make that decision. That was that guy in the administration. Blame the president. Blame that administration. You know, don't look at me. Don't vote me out. Um, so do you? We could give them the power, but do you see anything changing within Congress? Uh, granted, the Trump administration pushed it, but I don't. I, to me, it just doesn't seem like they're going to take that duty seriously. Well, I'd, I'd mention, you know, in, in my remarks, I'd mention the, the appetite problem with Congress. You know, even when there's a clear opportunity to roll a lot of things back, it doesn't always happen. And it's very difficult. And, you know, Congress did create the administrative state. It did delegate all this power, which I think is a, you know, a, a huge mistake. Um, I, there, there's not a lot of appetite for major reforming. I talk about, you know, restoring Congress's authority to make law rather than having agencies do it. I'd, I'd much rather see larger staffs on the Hill than, than, than grow these agencies. It's what I hope in, in terms of getting traction. See, when you, when you try to get something with, with traction right now, it's working around the edges of the administrative state that we have. So it's like there's bipartisan legislation to say, oh, when, when, when agencies are in the planning stages for their new rules, there ought to be more public consultation, you know, earlier way in. And things like retrospective review of rules, all ideas which I agree with. I, I always support these because, I, as I mentioned, we, we talk about this compendium. I'm always wanting to create the data that you need for reforms in the future. But it's not foundational reform that, that really is underway. In fact, to me, the Congressional Review Act was the last time there was a real 
foundational um, reform, you know, in, in terms of Congress. And, and back when the, when the Congressional Review Act passed, it was part of the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement and Fairness Act, I think it was called. And it, the, the CRA part of it passed like 87 to 10 in the Senate. I mean, you couldn't even begin to imagine. Senator Nichols was a co-sponsor. Yes. Nich- Nichols. I mean, I'm sorry, Nichols and, and Reed, Harry Reed were both and, and co-sponsors. So you had, yeah, that's right. You had Reed up giving floor statements in favor of Congress taking back its power, you know, to make law. It, and Car- uh, Senator Levin, the same way. It was extraordinarily bipartisan. We don't have anything like that now. We just have these little bit of – they're still good. I would still – I still support them. But it's marginal reforms of the administrative state, nothing foundational that transforms the way we think about how you regulate. Because to me, you don't – you know, what the left does is it creates a value and names an agency after it, you know, and they've got – you know, they run away with new regulations. And I don't, I don't think that's what regulation is. To me – you know, companies aren't in a vacuum. They've got upstream suppliers, downstream customers, business, Wall Street, advertisers, all kinds of forces regulate companies. And you have to be careful of ejecting all of that in favor of political regulation, which can make, make us worse off. But when you're in a situation like this, you, those are the best kinds of bipartisan reforms you can get. I think there is a little bit of interest in bipartisan disclosure of some of some of the guidance and dark matter that we talked about. I participated in hearings in that regard. But otherwise, I tend to think, and I, and I often push this in, in, in my work, you know, you don't, you don't have to regulate the industry tomorrow, the, the new industries tomorrow, the way we've regulated the ones in the past. So what I try to do is look for ways to wall off and make sure we don't over-regulate drones or driverless cars or, or, or artificial intelligence, things like that. And often when you're up on the hill uh, talking with folks, you'll find that's a bipartisan issue. Not every, everybody wants Uber regulated or their ability to use Airbnb easily regulated. So there's more, you can work more with the left on some tech policy issues like that in terms of keeping the regulators off than you can on, you know, say, environmental issues or things like that. So, But to the extent you can wall off the future, I think that's where we get our traction. But beyond that, um, we've got to build the compendium that shows the administrative state is really messing up a lot of things. I did mention the cost issue, and I really think regulatory costs are vastly beyond what we what we consider now. It's on your handout. Over there. Thanks. Um, Steve Gannon from Citizens Financial. Uh, this is a question for uh, Meg Tayer, but others may want to uh, comment on it as well. So um, on March 5th, uh, Treasury Department issued a policy statement that said three fairly significant things about guidance. Uh, number one, it said that guidance would not be used as an enforcement tool. Number two, that it could be used as a safe harbor for the benefit of the regulated community. And number three, that um, in tax litigation, they would not claim uh, our deference for guidance. Um, given the fact that the secretary, that, and that was signed, by the way, by Brent McIntosh, who's their general counsel, and David Cowder, who is the assistant secretary for tax, tax policy and is also the acting IRS commissioner, I think, um, in any event, long set up to saying, given that the Secretary of the Treasury is the chairman of FSOC, um, is there a process by which FSOC could take those that policy statement, those concepts embedded in the policy statement, and make them consistent at least across the financial services industry? I think FSOC could do that. They could do it can more. I interrupt just for could you to say what FSOC is. Can you tell me what FSOC is? Sorry about that. That's the Financial Stability Oversight Council, and it's basically a forum where all the financial regulators come together. I think, Steve, that they could do that under their jawboning 
and and they've done very well with with their jawboning. Given though the mushiness of the guidance on guidance that the banking agencies, uh, uh, you know, uh, published, which was a step in the right direction, but to to use Wayne's terms, has some things to fret about, right? Because it was unclear about what was a violation of law, and it was very unclear on safety and soundness. And I'm, I think we know that that was negotiated between the agency lawyers and the supervisory staff to kind of be mushy. And so given that backdrop, I, I really worry about the ability within the banking agencies to push something forward like what the Treasury did. Now, the SEC and the CFTC, which are more you know, they're more rule-bound agencies, they might do so. So the answer is yes, but I'm really doubtful that it would actually happen. Let, let me ask a question that uh, deals with the going forward aspect of this. Uh, we have a natural reluctance on the part of regulated parties to uh, irritate, let's say, uh, their regulators. And one of the classic ways of irritating a regulator is suing them. So they may be reluctant in many instances mm-hmm. to bring lawsuits. Is there what's the likelihood this sort of problem can get resolved from the White House? I mean, one way, for example, is if an administ- an independent agency refuses to send its new rules to OMB so that OIRA can review them, the president could just fire the head of the independent agency or keep removing commissioners until he finally gets a majority to send it over there. That would lead to relitigation of Humphrey's executor. Uh, and, you know, that's going to take three, four years before it ever gets resolved. What other things can the White House do at this point to try to uh, deal with all these multifarious issues that we've got? Uh, I just, I'll just say uh, just real quick, it's, it's a little bit related to that, but it's a little bit different. The independent agencies that are likely to be or are considered likely to uh, rebel against this memo, actually, I don't know the results of it yet, but, you know, every year the GAO puts out its report on major rules issued, and it turns out that independent agencies sometimes file with GAO in ways that you wouldn't expect. You get more output, you get more information from them about major rules and stuff sometimes than you might expect. But in terms of getting them to really participate in this rule, I think, you know, they're going to be reluctant. But as I said, the executive agencies are reluctant, uh, are reluctant also. I still think it's going to be, uh, you've got bipartisan support from administrators of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs on both sides to say independent agencies should be subject to review. And if that were built into an executive order, I think you could get more traction with independent agencies on doing these kind of reports. Let me respond to what the president could do, but also the litigation angle a little bit more. Um, first of all, because I'm one of these unitary executive uh, pinheads, uh, Paul and I, when I was in the Office of Legal Counsel, he was in the Solicitor General's office. Um, no, he knows what I mean by that, but because the president is the chief. It's a term of endearment, by the way. It is. But (laughs) the the chief, you know, uh, of law enforcement, chief executive, everything, he can order his departments, I think, to take almost any legal position. So there's a lot that he can do through executive order. He could order the Solicitor General's office to announce never to seek Chevron deference. There's a question whether the courts have to, but I doubt it. You know, if the 
agent. I mean, there's a, a number of things that um, Wayne suggested you could do to beef up um, regulatory review. You could order that um, review of those past guidance documents. Um, you could review. You could order retrospective review. But on the litigation front, I still think that there's a role. It is extremely rare for someone to want to provoke their regulator, their supervisor. Um, our clients are no different, but we search, the, as a public interest, we search the world for those few clients who would be bankrupted if they followed. That one of our, our uh, cases we won in the Supreme Court 8-0, once we finally got there, was the Hawks Company, these peat miners, and when they were told they couldn't engage in peat mining by the Army Corps, um, it would have bankrupted this multi-generational family business. They were up against the wall. And so there are, and my evangelizing about raising the CRA issue is for those few uh, people who are up against the wall, uh, we need to help educate lawyers to raise for them those kind of claims or send them to Pacific Legal Foundation where we will represent them for free. Yeah, no, if if you consider yourself an evangelist, consider me a member of the audience who says amen because uh, PLF has been doing God's work uh, in trying to address this problem, particularly for people who are victimized by the administrative state. Meg, let me ask you, you have some independent agencies in the uh, financial community, and then again, you have other uh, agencies that are not. Uh, how can this get resolved in the financial community uh through litig- is it through, going to be litigation or is that too dangerous? Is it going to be through suasion? Is it going to be through what? What's going to happen in that community? I, I think we start with suasion because we're, we're almost, in many respects, we're dealing with the, the, the green fields of, um, poor training over many years. And so I'm an optimist by nature. I realize people have different policy views, but I think we have to start with basic training and suasion. Litigation is lovely to the extent that it gives examples, right? So if there's one litigation, 10 others may then think not to do it. But, you know, the, the, and there has been a fair amount of litigation in the financial sector, but it all happens through trade associations, not direct, with the exception of MetLife, who fought and won. Um, uh, under, you know, the strategic direction of Gene Scalia. Um, I, I think suasion and I think narrowing what CSI is and narrowing supervisory discretion are, are the ways to go. It, it's going to be a long, long path. We're approaching the end. Bef- uh, I want to give David Burton the chance to ask a question and I'll let any other members have anything uh, if they want to say. David? David, David Burton with the Heritage Foundation. I just, I have a suggestion on you if you want to keep the physics analogy. Yeah, the physics, right, because dark side of the moon is not physics. It's beyond the event horizon. When something goes beyond the event horizon, a black hole goes in a black hole and can never come out. Oh, I love it. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> but here's, here's my question. And it, it, when you think about OIRA and you think about Congress trying to uh, put restrictions on the administrative state. One thing that, that, uh, Wayne briefly alluded to is they're basically outgunned. OIRA has a few dozen people. The Congress has a few dozen people looking at this spread throughout the entire Congress in both houses. 
doesn't it strike you that we need to beef up OIRA and the number of people there looking at these rules and pushing back on on the agencies and similarly either beef up or or create uh, an organization within Congress that can push back against the agencies that has you know is well, well funded has experienced staff and knows what they're talking about and doesn't leave 18 months after they're hired. Yeah, I, I, that's an important thing to consider. Remember, after Trump did the uh, the one in two out executive order, which really was the, the real the point of the spear on that really was the regulatory budget. You know, it was capping costs and just said, well, do at least one in two out, but to main, mainly to cap costs. After that, he issued executive branch reform executive order, and then remember, he did one on regulatory reform task forces. And I had testified on, and I was looking at those as ways of boosting what OIRA was trying to do because you had a guy in each of the task forces at the agencies whose role was to work with OMB that way and to look for ways to roll back regulations. And I extended on that. I, I wanted us to have not just task forces and not just an OIRA, but an office of no. You know, for every regulation. In other words, there's this rule of flaw handout I have in here. The, the problem with the administrative state, a problem with it, there are a lot of them, but when, once a regulation is put in effect, that's it. I think we always have to have our eyes out, if agencies have expertise, of looking for ways to roll the rule back and turn the regulation or discipline over to the market, you know, expanding property rights, all these things that we as, as, uh, as classical liberals promote. So, as long as we got the administrative state and OIRA is the only break on it, I think you need kind of that role. If I call it an office of no, there should be somebody whose job it is to give the argument against every regulation, in my view. And so I, if you're asking me would I expand the budget of the federal government <laughs> for a bigger OIRA, okay. <laughs> you can cut it somewhere else. <laughs> but that's not Todd and then Meg, but – we're trying to wrap it up. Very brief. Several of the former um, directors of the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs have agreed, convinced me on two points that they all agree on. One is that it would it's very important to expand the OIRA staff, even for presidents. Some of us in the room don't think would be reg, regulatory uh, uh, nightmares because they'll make those regulations less bad. But they've also told me as part of OMB, OIRA can never ask for it. And OMB will never ask for it because they're budget green eye shade nerds. So we have to force additional staffs on them, but it's a very important thing that we should do. Meg, you have the final word. Uh, the banking agencies need more rule of law staff, which is lawyers are those committed to the rule of law. Um, most of them are self-funded. Um, the, um, the banking agencies have slim, uh, uh, legal departments which need to be strengthened. Listen, please join me in thanking our experts for coming today. Gang, with that, we are adjourned. Thank you. Nicely done. Thank you so much.